2: keep the music flowing we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one so check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast so you want to be a rock and roll star no well how about a podcast star well as it turns out there's a new all-in-one platform just for you it's called anchor and it's the easiest way to make a podcast and check this out it's free Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thank you so much uh, first off for checking out this series right here. Uh, We put out brand new interviews every Monday, Wednesday and Friday so if you love keeping up with all of your favorite artists and discovering some new ones, just know what's happening in the music world. I I hope you follow along with what we're doing here and hitting that subscribe button. You can uh, find us at all the major podcast hotspots like iTunes and Apple Podcasts Spotify. uh, Even YouTube. YouTube as well. In fact, there is a, a video version of this interview that you can find over there if you want to watch along. Of course, we put out interviews uh, again three times a week every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So uh, smash that subscribe we'll take care of the rest. I'm Kyle Merida. Today I'm going to be talking with Joan Osborne. She's back with a brand new record called Trouble and Strife, which she calls her most political album. We'll talk about the influence of uh, of Bob Dylan. She uh, her last album was a Dylan covers record, and she'll talk about the themes of gender expression, of immigration and the power of protests. In fact, Joan is from uh, right outside of Louisville where I'm based here in Kentucky. And, uh, and so, of course, we're going to talk about Brianna Taylor and what it's been like seeing Louisville and, and everything that's happened in 2020 uh, from the outside, you know, from uh, looking at her home base. Then we'll turn back the clocks. Her breakthrough record, Relished, turned 25 earlier this year. Of course, that had the uh, the big single, One of Us, uh, which Prince would go on to cover on his emancipation record. So I want to talk about what that was like for her. And she'll tell us a story about uh, attending one of his infamous parties And a very funny anecdote that happened uh, when she did uh, get pulled in to meet him privately in a room. Uh, Her follow-up record to that one, Righteous Love, also at 20, we'll discuss that a bit as well. So let's get into this, all about the record Trouble and Strife. It's Kyle Meredith with Joan Osborne.
0: She's back. She's back. Just She's when back. you thought you got rid of her. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's not. It hasn't been too long, you know. You did the Dylan's cover record uh, that, mm-hmm. that we loved, and that was only a few years ago. Yeah. And 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 I guess because of what you're singing about this time, and versus where you were coming from, I'm not so surprised. But but I, I hope you don't mind jumping into the deep end right away because you've called this your most political album. Is that right?
0: Oh yes, no question about it. This this is a. Uh, really kind of a a change for me to write songs that are very political in nature. Um, I've I've never really thought that I had the ability to write political songs. You know, I I would look at artists like John Lennon or Bob Marley or Woody Guthrie and just feel like I didn't have anything that was near any sort of perspective that was in that same league, so I should just leave it alone. But there, you know, for a number of compelling reasons, I I just changed my mind about that for this album cycle.
2: What were those compelling reasons? I mean, I'm going to say, obviously, the 2016 election, I'm sure, plays a part of that. But was there anything else specifically that made you really kind of go for it?
0: Well, it was, it was definitely a, a response to the 2016 election and to, you know, many of the things that are being revealed about the workings of our government uh, and who our government is working for and the corruption and the abuse of power that's going on. So it's certainly in response to that. Um, you know, I'm also a parent and I have a daughter and I'm very aware all the time of how my decisions and my actions are going to impact her future. And, you know, we all talk about, Oh, this, you know, we have to do this and that for the next generations. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's true, but it becomes a lot less abstract when you are thinking about your own child, your own nieces and nephews. um, And you think about the kind of lives that they're going to be able to have in the future. So, so that was part of, the impetus for writing political songs. And then also, you know, my experience doing that deep dive into the Bob Dylan material with the 2017 record and, and touring behind that a lot and, and really living with those songs day in and day out, you know, I began to sort of see how he was able to write songs, which, you know, used their, their language in a way that created these sort of, quasi mythical characters and these, you know, these stories, uh, and like using biblical allusions and all that stuff that that made these songs sound like they were talking about what's happening politically in the world right now. And yet the songs were written forty years ago, fifty years ago sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they and when they first came out, they sounded like they were talking specifically about what was going on. So I, I really thought about how was it that he was able to do that, that he was able to Write a song that could be universal and that could be relevant decades after it's first written, but still feel like it's very pointed. And uh, so I really tried to learn from him in that way and incorporate that when I was you know that idea when I was writing these songs
2: because to me that would seem you're you're writing more about the human experience, I guess, than than you would be pointing out. than you'd be calling out specific names or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. you know
2: because as, as you go through here, it is more than just politics. You know we get that from the first single that we heard, boy, don't you know? what a powerful moment first off and and what a great song uh compliments oh, there as well, you. but you know so at first because when when I first heard it, I thought, okay, maybe she's talking uh, on this subject uh, of trans but but it I guess it's actually much more than that
0: well it's it's funny the song was uh kind of the springboard for it was, um, I was in Scotland and I read this article about a local school district. And uh, one of the administrators was talking about how there were so many kids, um, 11, 12 years old and even younger who were expressing this desire to uh, you know to be trans and to transition from, uh, mostly from female to male, but also from male to female. And she was saying, you know of course, we wanna support these kids in, in whatever they need. Uh, But we have to maybe look at what is the, where maybe the societal pressures on these kids that could be part of their desire to do this. And I started, you know, I thought that's a really good point, you know, and I started thinking about what if you're, uh, you know, a, a young girl, an adolescent girl or a pre adolescent girl on the one hand, you you get this message, you know, all the time of you can do whatever you want, you can be whoever you want. And, and, uh, you know, there's nothing standing in your way. And then on the other hand, you, you know, turn on the TV, and you see things like the Kavanaugh hearings, or you, you understand that it, it's really not uh, this sort of wonderland of equality that you're going to be growing up into. So maybe that's part of the reason that you look at someone of the opposite gender with envy and say I would I don't want to deal with this stuff I'd rather do that instead and that was kind of the sort of the launching launching pad if you will for that song
2: what an interesting kind of um, twist isn't the right word but I guess angle uh, to approach something like that like like I you know I I go back and I read a lot of interviews um, especially when you were coming up and you know in the early 90s and mid 90s and stuff like that and 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 i, I won 't pretend like I know what it was like but but if you were a woman artist, one of the questions you got was what 's it like to be a woman artist <laughs> you know and, and what yeah. a bullshit question that that was and at least now it seems like the questions and, and again, correct me if i 'm wrong here, but at least the questions are a bit more thought out and, and deeper where it 's well beyond that part. I mean, for
0: in, in this moment, it seems like that, or maybe it's just that I uh, have been around so long that they've, you know, th- those questions of what's it like to be in a woman, being a woman in rock or whatever. It's just like the, those don't really apply to me, whereas they might apply more to someone just coming up or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I never really had much of an answer for that. Um, and I, I felt like it was just sort of, because it, the questions were asked in this moment when there were a lot of successful female artists, and it was like a woman in rock moment. Uh, it just seemed like the easiest question to ask, you know. So, I, but I never really had a, a good answer for that, and I still don't.
2: Yeah, lazy journalism really is what it uh, probably all came I think down so, to. Oh yeah, <laughs> a lot I of times. So. Um, <laughs>
0: you gotta, gotta get it together, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another song on here, and and that's the thing. Is like you can kind of throw darts at any song and 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 i feel like you're going to be tackling a big subject in this uh, another uh, early single is a uh, it's what's that you say and what we're hearing isn't something i can understand exactly because it's in spanish mm-hmm. but i can sort of feel what's happening um the intro is all in spanish and then the story continues throughout the throughout the song could you tell us what we are hearing there
0: yeah that is uh, a woman named anna maria rea who uh, was an immigrant to this country? She came with her family from Mexico when she was a very young girl. Uh, and uh, the song, you know, for me, the song came from this place of hearing this conversation uh, about immigration in our country and being really dismayed by all the people who feel like this is a negative thing for our country because you know, what I've always understood about immigration is that people who come here from other countries bring their energy and they bring their cultural traditions and they bring their ambition and they they add to this country and they always have. So it's really dismaying to me that somebody would think that, you know, immigrants should not be welcome here. So I wanted to write a song. That really celebrated the kind of person who comes to this country uh, at you know some maybe as a child and makes this place better because of being here. And you know I, I wrote the song and it was all finished and and there were these big instrumental sections that didn't have any singing in them and I kept hearing a spoken word thing in there and I I didn't want it to be me, um, but I thought why don't I you know, turn the mic over to someone who has actually, you know, lived this experience. And we, you know, we talk a lot about immigrants and immigration, but I don't think we really listen to the immigrants themselves very much. So I wanted to allow somebody to have, you know, to use that moment and that platform in the song. And, and I contacted this group called Raisis, Uh, which is an organization that's helping people at our southern border who are trying to come into this country from Central America and from Mexico and and dealing with this really dehumanizing and disorganized system and this awful system. So racis has been assisting these people with their legal asylum claims things like that and I am am a fan of their work and I reached out to them and I said do you think you could connect me with someone who would be willing to talk about their own story and that's and they said yes we know just the person and that's when they connected me with Anna Maria and uh, we had a conversation I interviewed her she was in a studio in Austin Texas and I was here in, in New York And I interviewed her for hours. It was about three hours. And it was a very emotional conversation. You know, the both of us were crying at certain points through, through this interview. And she talked about her whole life story of being a little girl in Mexico. Her father had been kidnapped. And even though he was eventually returned, they never felt safe again uh, in Mexico. And they decided, her parents decided to emigrate to the United States. And so she had to leave her cousins and her grandmother and, uh you know, all, all these people that she had grown up with. She didn't know if she was ever going to see them again. You know, it was a, it was a very moving story and it, it kind of goes on from there. But she became one of these people who really gives back to the community and really makes America better for her being here.
2: No, it, it, it's an absurd idea that uh that immigrants wouldn't make let anybody, you know. I mean, when we me started, you know, the imaginary line that divides a piece of land, you know, and the and the whole concept of that is, you would think this far into the future mm-hmm. that we'd be past that.
0: Well, I mean, it's, I think it's very, it's an effective tool for people to demonize uh, people coming uh, from outside this country. That's an effective tool that some people are able to use. Mm-hmm. And it's an effective strategy sometimes. But for me, you know, I think, what a boring place this would be, you know, especially coming from a cultural perspective and an artistic perspective. You know, the thing that's so great about the arts in America is that it comes from people who come to this country from elsewhere and bring their cultural traditions, bring their music, bring their storytelling, bring their cuisine, bring whatever it is. And then those different traditions combine and create these brand new forms that are Mm -hmm. so exciting. You know, you don't have Gene Kelly dancing to "Singing in the Rain" without without all these different you know Irish and African American and all these different traditions coming together and mixing up and creating something new. So I just I just feel like it's um, incredible that anyone would think that that's a bad idea.
2: Yeah, and by the way, the way that's mixed, uh, what, you know, her voice within all of the instrumentation. I mean, that can't be easy, and it, it just perfect. It's, you know, to use the studio, song, it's such it's so in the pocket, you know, it's really yeah, well done. Yeah, well, we
0: had a great, uh, we have a great engineer who, uh, the guy who recorded it, we, we did the whole record in my basement studio, and the guy who recorded it and then also mixed it, his name is Matt Shane, and he's an amazing engineer. He works a lot with the Flight of the Concords guys and has mm-hmm. done their television work and also their live work a lot, and he's, you know, just so happens to be a friend of ours, and we've been really, really fortunate to be able to work with him.
2: Um, you know, for for people that don't know, because you have been based in New York for a very long time now, mm-hmm. but you're from right outside of, of here in Louisville. Uh, has that been what's that been like for you to kind of see what's happening, you know, back in the uh, the homeland territory uh, with everything that has been happening here over the last few months?
0: It doesn't shock me that, you know, something like, uh, you know, the death of Breonna Taylor would happen. I guess what I can take from it, you know, is that the response to it from the community and from, you know, the city and, and from the state are, you know from the people actually who live in Kentucky and who live in Louisville, that response has been heartening to me because I think it's easy for people who are not from the South or from, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, these areas, to sort of look at the South as this monolith and as this very conservative, uh, you know, kind of place, and I always try to tell people, you know, it's it, it's not a monolith. There's all different kinds of people, and there's all different kinds of, you know, political opinions. And you know, part of what has been heartening to me in this tragic moment is the way that people have responded to this and have gone out into the streets and have tried to expose these injustices and do something about them. And it's, you know, it's happening in Brooklyn and it's happening all over. But I was I was very heartened to see people out in the streets as well in Louisville.
2: And they're still out there, too. I mean, uh, that that it, mm-hmm. the idea that protests can't, you know, doesn't ultimately fix or, or remove things, I should say, uh, we're showing out is, is not true because you know, and who knows how everything's going to play out, but it was yesterday we got word that, uh, the LMPD just hired, mm-hmm. they put in charge, the very first black woman mm-hmm. to, to run the whole thing. So that's like, that's something. And that's because of what's happening out in the streets. And that's, it's, yeah. you know,
0: I think that people who try to tell you that protest doesn't matter are the ones who don't want you to protest because they like things to be the way they are. Uh, you know, there's this line that I can't remember who said it, but, uh, it sticks with me so much. It's, uh, the easiest way to take away someone's power is to convince them that they don't have any.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so I I try to keep that in mind and and think about you know what's what's my power in this moment. What can I do?
2: Well, I, I want to take a little transition here um, mm-hmm. away from the record trouble and strife, uh, because a couple of your your first mainstream records had big birthdays this year. Uh, one, Relish, uh, turned twenty five earlier this year. Uh, Righteous Love turns 20 in October, I believe.
1: Yes.
2: And um, and both, I mean, they're they're classics. You know, I I know there's not a lot more that you probably haven't said about both of these records here. Uh, I I think first I'm just going to throw some compliments at you. Right Hand Man, one of the best vocals, one of my favorite vocals, you know, that take in there. like (laughs) You've got a growl to, you know, and and one that you've used before and and since, uh, too. What do you remember about recording that song?
0: Oh, yeah. I I remember being in the studio. We were uh, in Westchester, New York. We had rented this house uh, and we were kind of trying to recreate uh, the sort of music from Big Pink thing where the band all moves in together in a house and we all spend night and day working on the record and that sort of thing. So we were in this big house with a giant great room in the front with a big stone fireplace and it had one of those glassed-in porches and they turned that glassed-in porch into the vocal booth. So I was there, uh, you know, with my headphones on and and just going over the song again and again and again and it's, you know, it is a pretty high energy vocal so it took a lot out of me with every take and I would need to kind of gather myself again in between takes um, but we did it a whole bunch of times. And I remember the teenage daughter of the person who had rented us the house was there watching and listening. And after we were done with the vocal, she kind of sidled up to me and was like, that was really cool. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> yes, yes, teenage girl thinks it's cool. We've done something. This is great.
2: You <laughs> in America we're on our side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is such a powerful and fun song to listen to. Of course, uh, one of us would go on to take a life of its own. I, I, I guess I'm more curious, you know, it'd be a few years later on his, uh, I think it was the Emancipation record, right? But Prince would cover that. Yeah. What was that like for you? I, I, did, had you did you have a, any kind of professional relationship with him at that point?
0: Um, I did not have a relationship with him when he decided to cover the song. He he started, um, you know, talking in, in interviews and stuff about, the song and about uh, how much he liked it and and you know saying really nice complimentary things about me and uh, you know I had been a Prince fan for decades and he's such a he was such a legend and and um, so I was just I mean I was sort of I I thought people were kidding me when they first told me about it but uh, you know I was just so thrilled and, and so honored and then I was actually able to meet him um because he reached out and invited me to this party that he was having in New York and you know I went to this party and it was like it was like the fantasy dream party of being you know like a famous rock star or something you know i got there and Sheryl Crow was there, and LL Cool J was there, and Lenny Kravitz was there, and, and uh, you know, Questlove was DJing, and everybody was out on the floor, and it was just, it was like this amazing thing, and uh, one of Prince's handlers kind of went, came and grabbed me, and, Took, you know, ushered me into this little back room where he was sitting all by himself, and I had just been dancing like crazy, so I was all sweaty and and uh, I and he sort of ushered me into this room, and you know, there was Prince, and he's like this tall, he's a tiny little guy, and I, you know, I came in, and I'm all sweaty and flustered and breathing hard, and and uh, he was like, hi, it's nice to meet you, and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad to meet you, I just I just want to give you a big hug, and and he just sort of looked me up and down and said, well. Words can do a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh!
0: <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, that's all. I love you." <laughs> yeah, Great so moment. that was that was me meeting Prince.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, and quickly with righteous love. So that followed up, but it was a bit of a, a bit of a wait there. I mean, five years. <laughs> a lot of things changed in yeah. popular culture and music at the time like what was it did it feel like it was too long did you like what was the reasoning for that and and did you feel like still a part of the popular culture as you had you know had been
0: Mm -hmm. well i I think i'm you know i have to uh, take responsibility for it being that long of a time you know i think the success that the the relish album had while i'm so grateful for it and there were so many things that were wonderful about it I ended up feeling that I was under an awful lot of pressure and and most of that pressure came from me uh, to do something as a follow-up that was going to be just as successful or that was going to be better than that record and and you know I just really you know I tried and I tried and I turned in some things to the label and they said no we're not gonna release this and you know I kind of twisted myself in, in knots to try to make it happen and it just it just took me a long time to get around that um, you know and and uh, that's just what it had to be it was not a fun time and I was you know I sort of wake up every day with this weight on me of like oh god I need to follow this record up and and uh, uh, so it wasn't a great a great fun period but uh, that was a long time ago and uh, I feel like I feel like right now is a great time uh, to be a, a creator at least in, in my in my life because you know at, at the age I'm at, I kind of don't care what anyone thinks of me anymore, which is such a liberating thing. So I'm more excited than ever to just try things and, and write new things and, and really just as long as I like it, then I'm cool with that. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have enough of an audience that has stuck with me through the years where i can i can do that i can put a record out and i can well at least before COVID i could go on tour and make a living and and support myself and support my family and and i don't have to worry so much about some overarching you know pop hits or whatever although who even knows what that means anymore um but i'm i'm in a very fortunate position as an artist to be able to kind of do what i want and please myself and still make a living at it and you know at this Stage, so I'm I'm nothing but grateful about that.
2: You just beautifully brought it right back around to the present day. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, so how
0: I did that! Yeah, you,
2: you do the seg, so I don't have to. That's uh, I'm always awkward <laughs> at it. Uh, but it's true. I mean, we love what you do, Uh and, and that's no secret. You know, to to any of our listeners here in Louisville at WFPK. we love playing your music. Uh We absolutely love with with Trouble and Strife. Um,
0: well, thank you, and right back at you too. I, FPK is such a great station, and you know, I don't live in Louisville anymore but I do visit a lot because I still have family there and that's the first thing I turn my dial to is FPK and I'm always interested to hear what you guys are playing and uh, even you know online I'll be somewhere and I'll tune in and it's uh, it's great to to feel that kind of sense of hometown hometown pride uh, about the station
2: absolutely well we'll keep doing it we'll keep playing it you keep making the music we'll keep playing it it's an easy deal take (laughs) care (laughs) <laughs> Joan, it's been so great talking to you. Uh, congratulations on Trouble and Strife. We do love the record. It's an important record. And thanks for, you know, using the moment to, uh, to to talk about these things, too.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kyle. I really appreciate talking with
2: you. Now, the last time Joan and I caught up was back in uh, 2017. She had just released that uh, Dylan covers record called The Songs of Bob Dylan. And she and I got to talk about what sparked the tribute, the, the new spin she gave to his catalog, and uh, those times she performed and recorded with Dylan. So check this out, part two of Kyle Meredith with Joan Osborne. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Joan. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right.
2: What a great record that you've just done with the uh, with the Oh, songs thank you. Them. Wow. Yeah, I mean it's it, it it's not it can't be easy to cover an artist who has I don't know seemingly been near endlessly covered, but. What Mm -hmm. you've done to these songs, and and this coming from a a Dylan fanatic, I mean, I had so much fun listening to them, and many times throughout the album just sort of forgot that, you know, that I was listening to songs I'd heard a million times before, other than I could sing along the first time, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's start with the story, because as I understand, this sort of starts with uh, some residencies you were doing, right?
1: Yeah, we. um, there's a, a place called the Cafe Carlisle in New York City, and it's kind of this iconic Manhattan cabaret room. Um, if you remember the Woody Allen film, Hannah and her sisters, they go to see Bobby short play in this room. So it's this very like iconic New York city place. And, um, we got a call from them asking if, uh, we wanted to do a residency there. And at first I was a little, you know, confused cause I'm not in any way a cabaret singer. Um, <laughs> yet I really wanted to play the room. So It kind of uh, reminded me that I've always had this idea to take this thing that Ella Fitzgerald did in the 1950s and 60s, um, which was, uh, it's now called the Songbook Series, but she would pick a different writer or writing team and devote an album to each one and, you know, do only their material. There's a Harold Arlen songbook, there's a Cole Porter songbook, I think there's a Rogers and Hart songbook. So all these writers that we consider to be sort of, you know, great American songbook writers... Um, she did this whole great series of recordings. And I'd always thought, wow, wouldn't that be a cool thing to sort of do an updated version or my, put my own spin on something like that. So when the Carlisle reached out to us, I thought maybe this is the perfect way to test this idea out, to pick one writer and to focus on their material only for this residency. And, you know, we talked to the Carlisle about it and we suggested Bob Dylan and they were really into the idea. So that's really where it came from is is the notion of, Sort of remaking this Ella Fitzgerald uh, series, sort of in you know in our own image.
2: And, and and other, I mean, other than a lifelong love of Bob Dylan, was there any specific reason why you chose him mm. for the first time?
1: Well, you know, he has so many amazing songs. We thought, oh, this will be easy because you know we'll never run out of ideas <laughs> to try and different songs to try. If we can't get the first fifty, we've still got you know two hundred and fifty <laughs> to dig from. So. Um so that was part of the reason. And yes, I always, you know, have felt a bit of a connection to him and a kinship to him and I've, you know, had the great honor to sing with him and I've recorded a couple of his tunes in the past. So it just seemed like an obvious choice for the first one.
2: I, I was gonna ask about that later, but since you brought it up, I mean having mm-hmm. Dylan moments I mean, you know, I mean cuz he's he's not real in most of our minds and and I say this as someone who gets to talk to artists and and kind of humanize everyone all the time but mm-hmm. there's still a few of those that are you know they're just they're greek gods or whatever in the art form mm-hmm. you know for you I don't know how much time you got to spend with him and especially you know there's a story about you two singing together and you're like what inches away from him right
1: yeah well that was actually the first time I met him uh, we were doing this duet together. Uh, there was this TV show uh, about the 1960s, and they wanted to have a re-recording of one of the tunes So uh, his people called and asked me to uh, to join him in the studio and re-record Times of Freedom with him. So, uh, you know, I know some of the guys in his band, and I arrived at the studio, and, and he wasn't there yet. And so we just kind of sat around and chatted. Um, and I, I remember very distinctly my back was to the door, when he walked into the studio, but I immediately knew that he had come in because it was like the weather in the room changed. You know, not only does he have this sort of personal charisma, um, but everyone in the room subtly, without looking at him, without really registering it in an overt way, everybody in the room subtly uh, turned their attention to him and, uh, you know, seemed to be sort of gauging his mood and and gauging, you know, what might happen next. And as the session went on, I realized that it's because Dylan has this, you know, restless intelligence and he would try an idea and he would try another one almost immediately afterwards and he works very fast and, you know, if you're not really, if you're not really focusing, you're going to get left behind. So it was kind of a, uh, I think is a, a good thing for me to have to focus so intently um, and, and we were sharing the same microphone. So I was, I was really just sort of looking at his lips to make sure that my phrasing would match his. And to focus so intently. And I think that helped to save me from being too nervous to even function in that situation.
2: <laughs> the little tricks we have to you know, to do to, to be able to, to pull these moments <laughs> off. Well, back with the the songs that you covered then, you know, so when you go into these you obviously want to put your own spin on it. Did you have sort of an idea of how to do that or was it more of just feeling it out as you went?
1: We because the, the material is so vast, there's so many songs. Um, I felt like I needed to have certain kind of lenses to to look through to focus on particular songs and just narrow down the choices. So uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was make sure that we got material from all throughout his you know his life as a songwriter. You know, many people know the stuff from the 1960s or they know the stuff from the mid 70s, uh, but he continued to make records through the 80s, through the 90s, through the aughts, and there's you know, brilliant songs all in, in those years as well. So I wanted to make sure that I did some stuff from, you know, throughout his career. Um, We also wanted to make sure that we included some of the things that are people's favorites, you know, a song like Tangled Up in Blue for instance, and also pick some things that were a bit more obscure. Uh, So uh, like in particular, a song like Dark Eyes off of the Empire Burlesque record, Um, you know, not many people, Uh, know that song. So we wanted to give people some favorites and also some surprises that they might not expect. Um, And then after that, it was just, you know, trying to find the stuff that particularly suited my voice. You know, as an interpreter, you want to find that place where your voice and the source material together hit sort of a sweet spot. Um, And that's kind of, you know, what we did. We just sort of started like that. And we had a lot of, uh, we did a lot of trial and error, um you know picking tunes and trying them out, and you know doing them this, this way, doing them that and uh, and that's kind of how we narrowed it down. but you know but we could certainly do another eight or ten right. records of nothing but Bob Dylan's songs.
2: yeah, and when you cover a song you you do become a bit more intimate with it uh, were you able to did you learn anything from these songs that maybe you you did you hadn't heard in them before that you remember?
1: You know, I guess I was uh, like the song "Masters of War." I mean, that that song always really just you know levels me. And it's not that I didn't know this about it intellectually, but to sing it again, um, or really actually to sing it for the first time because I hadn't sung it before. We worked on it for this record um, to sing it and to have those words in you know in my mouth and to uh, to perform them. It just it's such a visceral thing and. And, uh, you know, such a clear-eyed, concise critique of a particular kind of human who is a war profiteer, you know, is somebody who makes their money and makes their fortune off of the misery of other people. And to be, uh, you know, to be so, you know, razor sharp with it as, as that song is, uh, is, it's just really incredible. And I guess I, I felt like, um, you know, other tunes like, Um, Highway 61 revisited, Uh, you know, his version of it is this sort of rollicking uh, kind of blues, talking blues style thing. And we put almost like a Middle Eastern spin on it rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And for me, that um, that sort of propulsive energy uh, kind of allowed me to discover some things in the song that I I hadn't known before. Uh, And it's, uh, I think his version is a little bit more laid back and even humorous. And the version that we do is, is I think, much more uh, biting. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, maybe maybe just uh, discovering that a great song can be, you know, performed in a number of ways and still hold up and, and can, you know, people can inhabit it in all different ways and it still comes to life because the, the bones are so, you know, so solid and the structure is so well put together.
2: Yeah. And, and a quick comment on uh, on Masters of War. Which, you know, that version that you did is is, is completely powerful. It's, it was a song that I always thought, I, I wish that any person that became president of the United States, they mm-hmm. had to sign something that they understood that song and had heard it and <laughs> written an essay about it and, and took that to heart. And I felt like if you can oh. listen to that, that's a good place to start. And, and I started thinking of this quote that Dylan had, maybe it was in his book or somewhere anyway, where he said, mm-hmm. he proclaimed he had a song for every occasion, which I'm pretty sure is true. If there's any occasion mm-hmm. that you can conjure up, Dylan's got a song for it, <laughs> and, and that makes them relatable, you know, all the time. But, you know, unfortunately, while there's no war on the tip of our tongue at the moment, although I think we're always fighting someone, like that every occasion is a much darker reason right now. And to have a song like that, that you're singing now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's you know we may not be currently, uh, I mean, but we actually are at war, right, in, right. You know, Afghanistan and Iraq, and you know those things are actually going on. Um, but even if we were not, there, there's wars going on at some, you know, in some place uh, all the time, and there's a, a you know a machine that feeds that and profits from it, and I think that's uh, you know sadly that is why that song, which was written 50 years ago, is just as topical today as the day it was written. And, uh, you know, I guess to to speak to your comment about, you know, Dylan saying he has a song for every occasion. I mean, I think there is something about him and his conception of himself. He used to joke that he was like a song and dance man. But I think that's kind of a real thing. You know, he uh, he really was able to um, to create different songs and, and create different kinds of songs. And and, you know, that's another thing about his uh, body of work is that you know you have these tender, beautiful, delicate
0: songs, and,
1: and you have these funny, weird, surreal songs, and you have these biting, satirical, political songs, and you, know, you just have everything there. And I think that might be part of his, you know, conception of himself is that, you know, he's a troubadour, he's a professional guy, who's got to go in all these different situations and have something for people no matter what comes up. And I feel like that's kind of a mark of his professionalism
2: in a way. And he keeps that myth that you know most artists can't even grasp how to do that these days, and mm. you know, luckily that uh, luckily there's some folks out there who still who still have that around them because I think that's important oh, yeah. for, for uh, this art form and all of our art forms completely. So. Mm-hmm. I love what you've done with the songs. I'll even, uh, you know, bring up Rainy Day Woman. I mean, that song, I just, that's actually one I push out of uh, a way, usually when I'm listening to Dylan's, like, I don't need to hear that mm-hmm. one, you know, it's, it gets a little bit goofy. And you brought that so back home and gave it, I don't know, a sort of a serious nod that made me, I don't know, hear those lyrics once again, you know, because it's easy to just to become wallpaper after you've heard it a million times and...
1: Yeah, I think that's really well thank you for saying that. That that to me again is the challenge. It's like some some of these songs are so familiar that, you know, if you listen to the original version of it, it's it's kind of like you don't hear it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know it so well. It's already traveled down these neural pathways in your brain so many times that it's like it's not really making an impression to hear it again. So that's part of what, you know, our job is is to find a way To you know, unlock the meaning of the song in in a new way, and you know the the thing with that tune in particular, um, yeah, his his version of it is is this kind of like jokey version, um, and yet if you just sort of strip it back to the lyrics, and you know, we kind of gave it almost like a, you know, late night, uh, you know, blues or jazz club sort of vibe, um, then it 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 starts to take on almost like a menacing aspect, and uh, and I, I felt like that was kind of a cool way to to revisit the song uh instead of it just being this sort of uh joke about you know everybody's got to get high it's uh it, it has a little bit of a different flavor if you put it in this different context
2: yeah I mean it recontextualized it to me, and that was the first thing I noticed is you know I took it way more seriously so uh, mm-hmm. Again, uh, I-, I love what you've done here. That this is such a cool record, and I'm so glad you did it. And uh, you know, if you do eight more, I'll probably listen to all eight of them. So, <laughs> but, uh, well, thank
1: you so much for uh, for speaking with me today. Please give everybody uh, back home my my hello, and uh, hopefully, I'll see you guys soon.
2: I will do. Take care, Joan. It was great talking to you.
1: All right, thanks a lot.
2: Bye right, bye. My thanks to Joan Osborne. Trouble and strife is the new one. Big thanks to you as well for uh, checking out, uh, again, this uh, this episode here before you get out. If you enjoyed what you heard, uh, please, again, do hit that subscribe button. Uh, you can find us iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And, again, there's a video version of this interview at YouTube. And then after that, head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern, an hour full of song premieres, music news, anniversary spins, and bonus interviews. Again, that's Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound has your music and film news. You can also find me on the social media spots, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of them, at Kyle Meredith. And that does it for another edition of Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.